0: You're listening to Source Connected, a podcast hosted by Phil Simpson, showcasing creative and innovative solutions for a new earth paradigm.
1: In this episode, I caught up with Dawn Cookow, who is a nutritional therapist specializing in weight loss. She believes that food is meant to be enjoyed, that eating healthily doesn't mean depriving yourself. Her approach has helped her clients to reclaim their vitality and discover their unique path to lasting weight loss. During the course of the podcast, I discovered that her book, The Body Effect, is not just about weight loss, but more about a journey of self-discovery, of coming back into balance with yourself and tuning into that inner body wisdom that is always there guiding us. Hello Dawn, and welcome to this episode of the Source Connected podcast. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. How are you doing?
0: Thank you, Phil. It's lovely to be here with you. Yes, I'm I'm good.
1: Oh, oh, that's great. Uh you've recently written and published a book called The Body Effect. And before we discuss the book and your background and other things, I'd like to start with a quote. Um it's actually a line in the author's note right at the very end, and it just caught my attention. I thought it was beautiful. And you say, we live in crazy times and the world needs the best you now. What was behind that quote?
0: Well, the quote really came because I was thinking at the time I wrote the book, I was thinking a lot about the clients I've worked with. And what many clients have said to me is I want to feel more like me. But so many of us don't feel like us or our best selves because, you know, we're not our bodies aren't necessarily in balance. And. We don't have the energy and the vitality that we want, or so many people are caught up in a negative relationship with food, and that takes up so much emotional and mental energy. That imagine if you didn't have that. Yeah. Imagine if you had the energy and vitality that you wanted. If you, if your mind was clearer, you weren't caught up in lots of emotional dramas around food.
1: Mm, that's that's really interesting, and actually that's something I really noticed in the book because although it's billed as a weight loss book. And it goes into why diets don't work and why we crave food and many other really interesting things. Uh, What I noticed is it is also helping us to understand our relationship, not only with our body, but ultimately with ourselves and discovering that unique path.
0: Yeah. So whilst the book is actually, well, it's a weight loss book because it looks at at your weight, but it's really a kind of an anti-diet book. It's really about bringing your whole body back into balance. So in the first part of the book, I look at 11 different areas that can cause your body to go out of balance, biochemical imbalances. And these can trigger cravings or the desire to overeat. They can make you store more fat or store fat around your belly. But when you bring those body, your body back into balance, whether it's your hormones, so say stress or your female hormones or your appetite regulation hormones or whether it's because you're low in particular nutrients, or whether it's because you've been exposed to chemicals in our environment, which we all are. When you start to bring your body back into balance, it's not just setting up the conditions for lasting weight loss, it's setting up the conditions for good health.
1: Right. And have you found through your own research and experience that because we're all very unique and our bodies need different things and you know, like the old adage, one man's food is another man's poison, that it's actually about revealing that uniqueness that brings someone's health and well-being back into balance.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you may have two people that have, present with the same symptom. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, two different people are storing belly fat.
1: Yes.
0: Now, they've both got the belly fat, Mm -hmm. but one of them, it might be, let's say, because they're stressed. And when you're stressed, your body stores fat around your belly. And somebody else might have more belly fat because let's say they're perimenopausal and their estrogen levels are dropping. So mm. their body stores belly fat because that that fat around your belly can produce estrogen, which offsets the declining levels. Mm. So even though they've both got the extra belly fat, it's going to be diff- different causes behind it and different things you need to look at to bring that particular imbalance back, you know, bring your body back into balance.
1: Right, yeah. So in a way, it, it feels like it's about tuning into our body wisdom and the messages that it's giving us about what's going on and also how our emotions are impacting us especially as you've just mentioned about stress and its relationship to belly fat
0: stress absolutely does stress Mm. causes a lot of different things going on but a lot of these imbalances in your body are related Mm. so let's say for example you're craving food because your blood sugar levels are low Yes. but when your blood sugar levels are low it also releases stress hormones to push your blood sugar back up again so all these things are interrelated and something may be triggered for you by an emotional reason but when there's when something emotionally is going on whether it's stress or something else there's also a biochemical component mm-hmm. so something is going on on that bio- biochemical level as well
1: mm. yes and and to so It's really through your own personal journey that you discovered these 11 different areas that you mentioned earlier that can cause these biochemical imbalances in the body. Uh, Let's just rewind the tape right back to the beginning of that journey. And how how did that all unfold for you? And and how did it lead you to write your book, The Body Effect?
0: Oh, well, for me, it was not a linear journey. It it was, um, well, I first started studying nutrition because I'd been working in IT for many years. And I was getting terrible, terrible period pains. And I'd been to the doctors and I was on prescription painkillers and they didn't even touch it. And the doctors were saying the next step was an exploratory operation. And I really didn't want to go there. And I went to see a nutritional therapist, not really expecting anything major, but sort of, you know, what else do I do? I need to try something. And this lady explained to me how the inflammatory mediators in my body were triggering this severe pain. And I changed my diet And within three months, I never had period pains again. So that was like a really strong uh, message to me, if you like. And I decided to go and study nutrition.
1: Right. Okay. So it was literally by changing your diet and understanding the foods that were negatively affecting you that, yeah, sorted things out. How long did that take?
0: It took about three months before I didn't have period pains ever again.
1: Wow. So that was quite a transformation. And Do you still have to stick to the diet?
0: Okay, well, I don't really like the word diet because it has lots of negative connotations. And often we do these short-term fixes. But it was, for me, it was really about making sustainable changes. And I've continued to eat in a sustainable way now, in a way that works for me, in a way that brings my body back into balance. And that's the thing. So you may have different imbalances in your body from me. And you also may have different um, food preferences. You know, one person may be a meat eater, another may be a vegan. One person may love kale, another person may hate it, but feel they've been told to eat it because it's a superfood. So it's not about any one food, it's about the overall diet that you're eating and making it work for you and address the imbalances in your body, about using food therapeutically for you.
1: Right, okay. And obviously eating food can be a joyful experience it's something that we love to do Um, how do you find that sweet spot uh, so that you mentioned about not liking the word diet and often diet means restriction how how do you find that sweet spot uh, to help people to come back into balance and well-being
0: well the way that I work with people is first of all I find out what imbalances are going on in their body and then we go through a process where each week we make one change and it's a step-by-step change, but they, they, f- they make that change so it works for them. Mm. So there's not like one food that I'm saying you have to eat this food. And in fact, I don't like to tell people what to do. Or I like them to work, you know, I help them to make changes, but they need to find what works for them. So it's more about changing the balance of what you eat. So if you're eating, say, a lot of sugar, that's obviously not very good for you. But in fact, cutting sugar out completely can be counterproductive. Because then you end up, it's fine if you can stick to it. But if you then end up restricting sugar and then overeating it, that is when sugar becomes addictive. Mm. And you really don't want to go down that path. But if you can make changes, so for example, maybe instead of having um, a sugary cake, have a cake sweetened with dates, for example. Find alternatives that work for you. And what also happens is that your tastes change. So we crave foods because our bodies are out of balance and people think they're depriving themselves if they don't have that cake. But maybe it gets to a stage where that cake just isn't so appealing anymore, where you don't want it in the same way. So you end up being able to eat what you want, but the foods that you want are healthier.
1: Right. Okay. so yeah, that's really interesting. So how how do we know um, what the difference is between what our bodies are actually telling us in terms of what we need versus our habitual patterns telling us to reach for that chocolate bar or biscuit?
0: Well, I think your body tells you what you need. Mm. But the problem is that our bodies have become out of balance. So let's say we talked about sugar cravings. Mm. Let's say your body is telling you you need sugar. Now, that could be for a biochemical reason. Let's let's take a simple one. Your blood sugar levels are low. Mm. But when you eat that sugar, it pushes your blood sugar levels up again quickly. So in a way, your body is telling you what you need, but your body is not designed for the type of foods that we have available to us today. So if instead you had some fruit, you'd be getting lots of fiber and nutrients along with it. So your body is actually doing its best to to get your body back into balance. But modern life, many aspects of modern life, stress, lack of sleep, the way we live, the chemicals we're exposed to, they can send your body out of balance. So if you're always craving sugar, then I think you can say, you know, it's probably not what you really need. It's your body's way of trying to get you back into balance. But when you bring your body back into balance, then it's so much easier to, to listen to those messages from your body. And the other thing is that we're actually taught not to listen to the messages from our body. It's, I mean, again, a simple example is they've done studies on children. And they know that up to the age of four, if you give a child too much food they will only eat the amount they need. You give them a bigger portion, they don't eat more. Mm. But once they, they reach the age of four, if you give a child a bigger portion than they need, they will eat more of it. And they're influenced by things by being praised for eating up all their food. And, and I've worked with a lot of people, and probably a lot of your, your listeners will identify with this. You've got a plate of food that's bigger than you need. Do you stop eating when you've had enough? Or do you feel obliged To carry on and finish till your plate's clean you don't want to waste food
1: Hmm. yeah that's a very interesting point uh sounds like social conditioning really coming into play there Um, so having said that do you think that well in the west at least we have our three main meals a day Um, whether that's a good idea or whether we should just be eating on demand as and when we need to eat
0: Well, it's better not to have really big meals because that's not great for your digestion or anything else. Mm. But it's also, I mean, I work with people to balance their blood sugar levels. So then it can help to have three small meals a day and a snack mid-morning and another snack mid-afternoon. So you're actually stabilising those blood sugar levels because that's really important for so many things, for your stress levels, for your female hormone balance. Mm. But that's just only one aspect of it but we've sort of become out of touch with our bodies and we eat because the food is there, or we eat the amount we're given rather than really listening to our own body's wisdom. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was one really interesting experiment that was done and they gave people these bowls of soup and they had some tubes under the table, so these bowls of soup were secretly refilling. But the people who ate more soup than that's just their bowl weren't aware that they'd eaten more, nor did they eat less at subsequent meals to, cons- to, to um, compensate for the extra food they'd had then, and they know that we we assess food visually rather than listening to the messages from our body. But when you start to get back in touch with your body again, then you are listening to the messages from your body a lot more.
1: Mm, yeah, great, great story, and w- wow, what an experiment! Yeah, I can I can really see how um, you know, as human beings, especially living in Western artificial environments where we kind of start to lose that sensitivity to be able to listen to those natural signals. We're, we're not in nature as much, and, and and so that sort of ability to tune in to that body wisdom then starts to uh, deteriorate, I can imagine. So, And also then there's the social conditioning and then being told what we're supposed to be doing then also starts to interfere with things.
0: Absolutely. I mean, we're taught to give so much weight to logic mm. rather than listening to our body's wisdom and, and combining the two. Yeah. Can I tell you a story yeah, about that? Yeah, yeah. So when I was um, 24, I was living in Rotterdam in Holland and I'd been working there for a couple of years since I'd graduated. And I was getting fed up with big cities and I was getting a bit bored with my job and I wanted to change. And I got it in my head I wanted to go to Hong Kong. So I looked into it, and with the level of experience I had, there's no way I could have gone there and afforded to pay the rent. But it was one of those situations where my, my body was just telling me, it was almost like I didn't even question it. And then things started falling into place. Like a close friend of mine, a fr- someone she'd been friends with at college and hadn't seen in years, suddenly rang her out of the blue and said, um, I'm living in Hong Kong, can I come and visit? So he came and visited and said, well, if you come to come Hong Kong, come and stay with me. Anyway, so I tried to find a job in Hong Kong from Holland, but it, I couldn't. So I just got on a plane and went out. And I contacted this guy and it turned out he actually rarely went away on business. But he happened to be flying into Hong Kong from China. Um, and his plane landed an hour after mine. So we met at the airport and traveled back to his flat. And then I had this interview for a job. And the interview was a complete disaster. There were three people interviewing me. One person was there to ask me questions about something I'd never used and didn't have a clue about. Anyway, I came out of the interview and the agent who'd sent me there rang me. and I said, oh, I suppose you heard it was a disaster. And he said, yes, I heard. But do you know what? They offered me that job because the project manager was convinced I could learn quickly and she liked me from the interview. So I got this job that was way beyond my experience, but of course I had the salary to match so I could afford to live. And I'd been fed up of big cities, and obviously I, I did know Hong Kong was a big city. But I ended up working on Hong Kong Island, but living on a smaller island that wasn't quite so intense and full on. Wow. And, I, you know, it's just fantastic. I had a lovely time out there, but that's an example of how... You know, your body knows. And when you have that absolute knowing in your body, it's for me, it's when I do something without really questioning it, even when all the odds are stacked against it, you still know that's what you need to be doing.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And it just goes to show, doesn't it? How um, just by trusting our natural intuition and being in the flow and just allowing things to unfold, it's uh, yeah, a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so yeah, that was you and your sort of corporate life in Hong Kong. But what what ultimately led you to want to study nutrition in such detail? Was there sort of a defining pivotal moment?
0: Oh well there's again, there's quite a lot of threads that play into this. Um shall I just tell you a bit about my own history with eating? Because whilst that didn't directly lead me to where I am now, it it sort of gave me a really big understanding of cravings and eating and the problems people face. So, well, I was a very anxious child, and I think it started when I was a baby, because I was, I was premature, um, and it was a bit of an emergency situation. My mum was raced into hospital, they got me out as quickly as possible, they took my mum off to emergency care, and they put me in an incubator. So I didn't actually see my mum for the first week of my life. Um, I was tube-fed, and I wasn't even held for several weeks. I think things are very different nowadays, but, you know, this is quite a long time ago now. Yeah. And they didn't let me out of hospital till I reached five pounds, which took me about five weeks to do. So then I was just turned into this anxious baby, and then I was a very anxious child. And when I was seven, we went to live in the Caribbean. And it was quite a free and easy life there. We just ran around barefoot most of the time. Um, I remember when it rained, it was so rare it rained that we just put on our swimsuits and went and played in the garden in the rain. You know, we were at the beaches most weekends. School was a very small school, just two classrooms. I was in the same class as my sister, who's two years younger than me. Um, And then, a few weeks after my 10th birthday, my mum flew back to England with me, leaving the rest of my family in Curacao, and I went to boarding school. So she left me there, and that was the last I saw of my family for three and a half months. And of course, we didn't have emails in those days. We had to write a letter home every week, but we were told that the housemistress read our letters. Um, so we, it didn't really encourage open communication. Mm. And then I think I spent my first term in shock. It was quite a difficult place. It was, wasn't really set up for children. It, I mean, it was a school, but it was run like a military academy. We weren't allowed toys, not even a teddy bear. We weren't allowed photos, not even a photo of our family. It, you know, it was very, very rigid.
1: Wow. And how old were you? I
0: went there when I was about 10 and three weeks old. So yeah, so I, I then didn't see my family again for three and a half months till the Christmas holidays. So there was a big period of adjustment. But within two years of that, my parents had moved to Holland. And it was um, a week, about a week before half term, 10 days before half term, I decided to stop eating. Now, I couldn't tell you consciously why I decided to stop eating. I didn't think I was overweight. And up to that point, I'd always had had a a very normal relationship with food, a healthy relationship with food. Mm. But I stopped eating. Well, I didn't stop eating completely. We had to get our names ticked off going into meals. So, you know, I was eating, but very, very little, as little as I could get away with. So I flew back to Holland. And of course, my family noticed I'd lost weight. But I, I didn't even have the words to describe what was going on. It was obviously a cry for help, but I didn't know what to say. So I just said, oh, the food at school's horrible. But that half term, for the first time ever, when my poor body was half starved, I couldn't stop eating. And so I regained all the weight I'd lost. Now, I was still a slim child, but I actually felt overweight. And that was the beginning of years and years of disordered eating, cravings, overeating, undereating, that eventually led to bulimia. Now... That went on for a couple of years, and then I worked with a clinical psychologist and and healed my relationship with food. So I haven't had cravings or the desire to overeat for over 25 years now.
1: And what sort of period of time did that whole process take? You mentioned you were 10 when it started.
0: Well, the whole disordered eating went on from the age of about 12 until I was in my mid-20s, and the bulimia didn't actually kick in until I was in my 20s. Mm. Um, And I had a couple of years of that. And initially, I overcame it just by pure willpower. But that doesn't work long term. Because like your body, it's a survival instinct. If your body is telling you to eat and eat now and to overeat, you're fighting evolution in your desire to, to, to curb that, if you like. So I was using this willpower. But again, a particularly stressful period in my life occurred. And my eating went crazy again. And I became bulimic again for a very short period of time. And it was shortly after that, that I worked with a clinical psychologist. Mm. Um, But I actually completely healed, completely rebalanced my body, if you like. But it wasn't for many years later that I studied nutrition. So there wasn't a direct link there. It was the period pains that got me into nutrition. But whilst I was still in training clinic, during my nutritional therapy training, I had a client that came to see me for weight loss. And she was this lovely, lovely lady and she was really fun to work with. And we put together a plan for her. And she went away and she came back four weeks later. So I was really excited to see her and she came back and she'd gained half a stone because she hadn't been (laughs) able to follow the plan. So this was then what led me into a lot of research. You know, what can you do when someone has that desire to overeat? How do you reduce that desire to overeat? How do you get rid of the cravings? And my tutors didn't know the answer. Anyway, so it ultimately led to years of research, mm. which is kind of how I ended up where I am now. Mm. So I, I don't think willpower is a way to lose weight because it doesn't work long term. Whereas if you can actually bring your body back into balance and get rid of that those cravings, get rid of that desire to overeat, mm. stop giving your body the message to store more fat, mm then you're setting up the conditions for lasting weight loss.
1: Mm. I I think that sounds like a really good approach, because one of the things I was wondering about with with anything, if we were looking to make changes in our life, um, you know, I'm just sort of thinking New Year's resolutions, we we, we set out plans for like, eating less, exercising more, and then, you know, a few weeks into the year, and all of those good, good plans just fall by the wayside. And I think I like this idea of where you're working together with someone and, and empowering them to understand how their body works and then also doing things in small steps as well because I think there is that thing of if we take on too much it just becomes overwhelming and, um, and, and then I, I can imagine that those lasting changes are, are harder to achieve um, if, if you take on too much. Absolutely
0: um, it's like building up new habits mm. and also if you do a short-term change quite often you're fighting against your body in that time to actually make it work i mean think how many people go on diets Mm. and then they think they've blown their diet Mm. um, because they eat something they shouldn't do and then they they well they they think i've blown my diet i may as well continue eating badly whereas if you focus on health which is what i do rather than weight and just on making small changes it allows your body to come back into balance but beyond that you also take away this kind of this judgmental side of it Well, I've blown it. Do you know what? There was this really interesting documentary done and they took two groups of people who were trying to lose weight and they'd been on this, this diet and then they gave them each an identical cake and one group was told the cake was low calorie and healthy and the other one wasn't. So both groups ate the identical cake but the group that thought it was healthy and low calorie carried on eating healthy for the rest of the day the other group thought, well, I've blown my diet. So they all decided to go and get fish and chips that evening. Right. And actually what they'd eaten was exactly the same. It was just their perception of it that was different.
1: Mm. So I can imagine that sort of there's there's a degree of sort of um, motivation and coaching that's required to, so do, how do you, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the book because obviously that's something that you've just published and, um, but it sounds like um, in order to help people to understand how their bodies work and what to do there there is a sort of certain amount of handholding and encouragement and sort of understanding all of these sort of the psychology behind it and do you so how do you work now with do you work with clients now or how do you
0: I run group courses mm-hmm. so within the group there's a lot of support mm. Um, And I think a lot of people really need that, especially when they're feeling, you know, making changes can be difficult. But what I found is that when I first ran this course, I thought there'd be real blips where people really struggled. And that's not to say it was easy all the time, but because people were changing their attitude and and I was saying, well, let's focus on health and on balancing your body. And then when you set up these conditions, you will lose weight. It did actually take away those big dips. Mm. But one of the biggest things I often have to do is actually to stop people from judging themselves because they eat something bad, then they beat themselves up and they tell them that they they failed, they're no good at this. And that can actually trigger overeating again and choosing bad foods. Like I was telling you in that example about the cake.
1: Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because it's we live in a world where we're constantly shown images of you know perfect bodies and perfect lifestyles you know social media is full of you know people showing how wonderful their lives are even if there aren't actually Mm. you know because often people are hiding what's really going on but the the outer perception is one of perfection and so i suppose people are dealing with that day in day out and i suppose that idea that they're judging themselves or they're failing is it? it must be quite quite a big one to overcome
0: it is I mean most people who've dieted will have felt they failed at some time and if any of your listeners are listening to this and they think well I've dieted and I thought I'd blown my diet did you then go and overeat did you then give up for a day a week a month whatever mm. um, but it's not about getting it perfect it's about making these small changes did you know what there's never a perfect time to start When is your life ever going to be completely stress-free? When is, you know, when is a good time to start? It doesn't always happen. So it's really important just to start identifying small changes that you can make and then building on them.
1: And I can imagine with these sort of group settings that um, it's, it can work to to encourage so you get a group energy going where people are encouraging themselves and and each each other to sort of because you're all in the same sort of boat uh do you find that that helps as well or does the comparison then begin again if someone's doing well and someone isn't
0: no it it doesn't work like that it's really about supporting each other Mm. and everyone has blips at different times and sometimes the support is practical like let's share some recipes that are that are working well for you yeah. or let's share some tips that have worked for you and sometimes it is just just support just emotional support
1: mm-hmm. yeah so that, that sounds really interesting and um we we'll, we will we'll provide some links uh I assume that you're running these courses online rather than, or, or, or are they face-to-face as well? Or how, how do they work? No,
0: it all works online. So, so I have the book, mm-hmm. and the book was actually based on my courses. Mm-hmm. And the first course is, you can go through it in the book, or if you prefer, you can go online. And there's 11 short videos. And at the end, and each video explains how one imbalance can block your weight loss. So whether that's via triggering cravings, whether it's triggering the desire to overeat, whether it's making you store belly fat. So you can do that course in about 90 minutes on your own. And at the end of each video, there's a quiz. So you can see if that imbalance is relevant to you. So at the end, and there's a, there's a piece of paper you can print out and at the end, and with tick boxes on. So at the end of that 90 minutes, you will know exactly what imbalances in your body are causing your cravings, your overeating, your excess fat storage. And then I run a group course which I'm not actually running one at the moment, but I'll probably start running one again in the next few months. And we all go through a step-by-step process together. So each week we look at one, making one change that's tailored to the imbalances in your body and to your dietary preferences and requirements. So by the end of that course, you have found a, a way of eating that's sustainable for you, that works for you. So I'm not promising, you know, 10, lose 10 pounds in 10 days. I mean, if that's the kind of thing you want, this approach is not for you. But if you actually want to get off that diet treadmill and never need to diet again and find your sustainable way of eating that that doesn't just help you lose weight, but boost your health and energy, that brings your whole body into balance, then this is the kind of process that can be really helpful.
1: Great. Well, that sounds really interesting. And how, and how does the, is there, you mentioned about there being a group, is there sort of a, a forum then for, for, for those participants to interact or how does that work?
0: Oh yes, we do weekly group calls and then there's a Facebook group that you can post in at any time. So if you're struggling with anything or you want to share a success or just want to connect, you can you can do it 24 hours a day.
1: Yeah, because I, I imagine that, that having that sort of community of support uh, where I've sort of done courses, it's always good to have that kind of support uh, with your peers and and to be able to share ideas. So that sounds great.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So the book, you know, it's, that must have been a labour of love. What, what, what drove you to, to actually write a book rather than just run courses all the time?
0: Oh, again, it's a really long non-linear kind of story. Well,
1: life's never linear, (laughs) is it? Let's face it. (laughs) So
0: going back to when I was studying, and I, I met this lady who wanted to lose weight. I wasn't able to see her after that follow-up appointment because it was in training clinic, but I couldn't let that go. Um, you know, I'd, I'd left something, a job, uh, that I that I actually enjoyed in the main um, to do something more meaningful. And I'd actually made the situation worse. So that led to years of research and I worked with a psychotherapist for a while and, We decided all this information needed to go into a book. So we wrote the information. We did alternate chapters, but my chapters were I covered one system in the body. And we didn't manage to get that published. So we started running courses from it and also learning from our clients' experiences. And then fast forward a few years, coronavirus came along and everything became more complicated. And I realized that I needed to absolutely simplify what I was doing and that not everyone needed the psychological side. So I then restructured all my material to simplify it into this form where each week people make one change. So instead of going around each system in your body, you found out at the beginning which systems were triggering your problems, which systems, you know, triggering your cravings, etc. And then doing the step-by-step process. So it made the whole thing much simpler for people. And so I ran the course like that, and it was incredibly successful. And it was after that, that I decided that I should write a book based on this new structure. Mm. So that's when I did this book and my book's in two parts. The first part, you find out what's going on in your body, what's triggering, you know, what's blocking your weight loss, what's triggering these things that are going on. And then the second part is this step-by-step process that you go through.
1: Mm. And how was that the book writing process for you? Because it's not something that everybody does. So how did you get into that mindset? Was it something that you've always wanted to do, write something? Or how did you sort of, you know, it's obviously a skill as well, isn't it? Being able to sort of take all of your ideas, all of your research, and then bring it together in a cohesive, um, you know, structure.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, there were lots of reasons I wanted to write it. I mean, I think there's so much misinformation about diets out there and what to eat. And diets don't treat you as unique in in the main. And actually, you are unique. Mm -hmm. And finding someone else's way of doing things is is not necessarily going to work for you. So there were lots of reasons like that. But actually, in a way, it's a bit like when I went to Hong Kong. It was something that I just kind of felt I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And that goes beyond all logic. And writing it, I mean... There was so much information to restructure, so there was a lot of work to do. And, okay, this is going to make me sound really disorganized, but actually I'm quite an organized person. But what I would often do is some days it was absolutely flow, and those days were no issue. Other days it felt like hard work. So on the days when it felt like hard work, I would just see what section I most felt like working on. So I might work on, I don't know, chapter 15, rather than going through it in a logical order. Mm. Or I might start working on client stories to fit in later. So it was really about, again, about working with what I most felt like working with on that day.
1: Mm, yeah, that's great because um, you obviously cho- choose a way that works for you. And, and like you say, life isn't linear. And, and I suppose that process yeah, can take a, a kind of more sort of a, an indirect route. And how long did it take you to write the book?
0: Do you know what? That's actually a really hard question to answer because there was all the original research and I had all that research written, and that took hmm, probably several years, actually, originally doing all the research, um, but that wasn't full-time. But then more recently, when I came and restructured it all, it took me probably about nine months to do the whole thing.
1: Right, from, from start to finish and actually getting it published yes. And as a physical thing on on your desk (laughs) but
0: you know what's been really amazing I mean it's so lovely to hold that published copy of your book because you put so much of yourself into a book but what's been really amazing is reading the feedback on Amazon how it's touched people's lives and um, people are emailing me and telling me their experience of, of reading the book and how it's affected them and I think a lot of people have felt oh this is something that I can make work for me
1: yeah That's amazing. And it it achieved um, Amazon bestseller status quite quickly, didn't it, after you...
0: It did, within the first two weeks of launching. So that was also incredible.
1: That's amazing. And uh, well, congratulations. You must be really pleased about that. Um, So what's next on the to-do list?
0: It's been a kind of a crazy ride, actually, this yeah. year. I mean, everything happening all at once. And, and then actually, once you publish a book, a lot of other things come into your life. Mm. Like I recently ran a joint promotion on our books with other authors who are working in the field of eating disorders and disordered eating. Mm. Um, I've been invited to speak at a, a health summit sometime in April. So there's, it's, it's almost like then these other things start flowing into your life.
1: Right. And, and and how has it changed now that, so that's a good example of how things have changed since you published the book and you're going to be running these uh, future courses. What, what else has sort of changed since then for you in the way that you work or maybe don't work now? Or
0: Oh, well, I'm, I'm doing podcasts like this now. Yeah. And you know, what? I, it's, it's a completely different phase. So you're, you're yeah. writing away. It, it's very much a solitary thing to do to write. Mm hmm. And now this is something completely different, like chatting to someone about it. It's like it's almost gone into a completely different phase.
1: So you're sort of out in the world more, yes, because I can imagine that writing a book is quite an inner experience, isn't it? You're sort of probably spending long hours on your own, just typing away and researching. And um, yeah, that's um, so it's kind of almost like an out breath at the end and, and a sharing. So that's yeah, that must be quite good fun to share what you've been working away on for, yeah. for, for, for months yeah
0: yeah it really is
1: yeah so yeah we, we're, we're living in crazy times you did mention that and I mentioned the quote at the beginning and you mentioned about you know the world needs the best you now and stress is is something we've, we've spoken about and how that can influence um people and their their health what, what, what are your sort of recommendations or what do you do to sort of de-stress? Because these are, we, we are living in crazy times. Let's face it, we've had a pandemic and now we've got <laughs> armed conflict in, in very close to home. And and yeah. I mean, how do people sort of reach that sort of equilibrium and, and, and well-being when there are so many external circumstances? What, what, what do you do to sort of bring yourself back into balance?
0: Yeah, I think it can be very hard. I think when you're stressed, it can be very hard. But when you're stressed, one of the things that really also helps with stress is walking or exercise. Mm. And I get out for a walk every day. And I I know now is a lovely time of year. It's March as we're recording this. And the crocuses are out. The daffodils are out. The Mm. cherry blossoms are starting to come out. Mm. And so I walk and I notice these things. Even if it's just a walk around the block, I make sure I get out every day. Mm. And there's other things I like to do. I mean, I love colour. And I, um, I, I like to do crochet things. I've got a, a beautiful crochet mandala I made on my wall. But just looking at colourful things and actually doing something with my hands for me works, as, works really well. Mm. But I don't, I mean, I don't crochet every day, but I do get out for a walk every day.
1: Yeah, so I'm just looking at uh, the, the, uh, the crochet um, hanger on the wall and it is beautiful. It's like a mandala, isn't it? It's lovely.
0: It is, and it's all the different colours in it. So mm. I had a lot of fun making it. And I think it's really important you find something to do. I mean, I like crochet. You might hate crochet. It's not about crochet. It's about finding something that feels good for you, something where you lose yourself in it. Mm. And I think most of us have had that experience where time just flies by and you don't know where it's gone. So engaging in something that you really like to do.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that it's about being embodied, isn't it? And, And you mentioned, I think we mentioned earlier on about how we're often in our heads uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about things, finding solutions, working mentally on things and, and uh, that, that that act of stepping out and, and using our bodies. And, and I think walking, I would also agree, is something that I love to do. Um, and it just moves the body and, and certainly being out in nature, which is something we're, we're quite often disconnected from, especially f- for those of us who live in urban environments. Luckily where we live, In Somerset, we've got countryside all around us, but even so, it's easy to become disconnected quite quickly. And we live in, yeah, uh, worlds that are screen-driven and and social media-driven. So, you know, this whole idea, and especially during the pandemic, I guess, we were being isolated, weren't we, Mm -hmm. really? And so that physical contact with other human beings was less and less. and, And I think a lot of people suffered with mental problems as a result of that, didn't they?
0: Yeah, I think they did, and the whole thing is tied tied together. I mean, when you when you're healthy physically, it also helps mentally. Mm. I mean, it may not be the full picture, but it really helps. But but walking or exercise is great for everything. And here in the UK, we get quite a lot of rain. Yes, but as long as you put on you know put on a waterproof and and go out, most of the time it's fine. Mm. But on some days, if I really don't feel like going out, I, I also have a rebounder, and I get up and rebound every morning. And I find that just sets me up really well for the day. Yes. And another thing that a lot of people like to do is just put on some music and dance. It gets your whole body moving. It gets you more into your body again and out of your head.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, that's uh, some, that's a passion of mine. And uh, with my background in music and DJing, I can see that that's something that people love to do, particularly in Froom here in Somerset. It's the, you know, the dance and singing as well is another one where, you know, it's uh, really helps to... Um, realign the body and and gives a sense of connection again yeah to others yeah and
0: these I think these things are so important like we're designed human beings are social creatures Mm. we're designed to be around other people isolation isn't good for us
1: yes absolutely and as
0: you say I think the last few years have created a lot of mental health problems Mm. and exacerbated a lot of anxieties and worries that people had before the pandemic
1: yes yes Yes, yeah, so it's it's a, it's a big it's a big area and I think it's one that's not really often spoken about. I mean, I think the focus tends to be more on uh combating the the illnesses rather than, you know, so that with the pandemic it's like how do we get rid of the virus and all of that, but actually the 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 knock-on effect of for, especially for mental health and 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 I don't know whether this country has a particular good track record with dealing with mental health anyway so it's kind of you know it's a big big problem it's probably a pandemic all of its own um i think especially since the last couple of years so it's yeah
0: so many years ago i used to volunteer for a mental health charity called sane line <laughs> So I would be on the phones and people could call in because they had uh, suffering with anxiety or depression or mental health problems or their carers could call in. So we provided practical information, but also just listening. And a lot of the times all we could do was was listen to people. But that can make an enormous difference in people's lives. And I remember one lady calling in and saying, well, she hadn't spoken to anybody in a week. And people can be so isolated.
1: I mean, it sounds awful, doesn't it? And I think that just being heard, it can really, really help, can't it? And just, just that just that act of listening. And, you know, I remember the, something that um, um, I was involved in with the, called listening partnerships, which was literally you just get together with somebody and each person would have a turn of just unpacking and talking about something. And it didn't even have to make any sense. It could just be a, a complete outpouring. And the other person would just listen without any interact without any sort of interruption or giving advice it would just literally be a process and then you just switch and it was it was very very powerful
0: I think in our society we're often very solution focused yes and a lot of the time people aren't looking for a solution they just need to be heard
1: yeah I think it's vital isn't it and um, just to, just to be able to sort of yeah just be heard and witnessed yeah mm. and what and what do you think you know what do you think the world needs when we've spoken about all these wonderful things, the exercise and and being out in nature and connection. Uh, What does the world need now? I mean, really?
0: No world peace would be nice right now, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think the world needs a lot of things. And I think as individuals, it can often feel too much to, you know, too overwhelming. What difference can we make? Mm. But I think, you know, a lot of what I do is about listening to your own body and your own body's wisdom. Mm. But I think imagine if everyone listened to their own body's wisdom rather than giving authority their authority away to external uh bodies uh, external whatever it is yeah. um how many people really want to go to war how many people mm. you know we need more kindness in the world mm. and i think when you are really listening to your body and just really connected to yourself mm. then we, we probably are kinder in the world
1: yes absolutely and uh yeah, and I think that you mentioned about that looking to external authorities, and I think we've been, in a way, conditioned to hand over our power, if you like, and the responsibility to external sources. It's almost like saying, "Oh, mummy and daddy are going to sort it out." And 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 I think is the invitation here for us to become self-empowered, to set up communities amongst ourselves, to really. Help one another in that way, rather than because you mentioned sometimes it can be overwhelming to sort of mm-hmm. try and find a solution to a world problem. So things that are happening now in in the on the other side of the world, yeah, it's not something we can personally influence. So we're seeing in the media how things are happening, and there's this this fear building up of like what's to come. So it's almost it feels to me like we need to be doing things at the ground level in our local communities and, and, and forging connections there and, and, and whether it's growing food or providing support on other levels. How do you yeah
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think go I think we all need to get back to the basics. I think when we move away from the basics, that's what's caused all the problems, isn't it? Mm. Living sort of disconnected from ourselves and nature. Mm. Whereas when people, they know that gardening helps with mental health, for example. Yes. Again, working with nature, we know mm. that isolation isn't good for people. Mm. But I think connecting with people locally, doing things like growing food, um, working together for the really simple things in life, but the mm. basics in life mm. can be really, really helpful. Yeah, Because yeah. by doing that, you're also setting up the conditions that you need to be healthy. Mm. You know, you're making contact with people. You're, you're growing food. You're out in nature.
1: Mm. Well, Dawn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it, it, it sounds an amazing piece of work that you've uh, done here with the book. And, and you've obviously got a lot of insights into how our bodies work. So th- thank you for all the energy that you've put into your book. And it's called The Body Effect. And it's available on Amazon. So for those who aren't living in Somerset, I, I understand that it is available in one bookshop in, in, in Froome at the moment.
0: Yes, it's in the Hunting Ravens. So if you live locally, you know, do support your local bookshop.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a, that's a local bookshop in Froome. But if not, then it is available on Amazon. And um, we'll also include links to Dawn's website so that you can find out more about the, the online uh, courses that she runs. And, and just for future updates, so we'll provide that.
0: Well, thank you very much, Phil. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Dawn.